Hello and welcome again to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This first episode is from my Yes And series, and I hope you enjoy it. It is March 2nd, 1955. The cooler months are ending, and the temperature rises steadily. We anticipate the heat daily, perhaps not just a reference to the weather, just a state of being down here in the south. School has let out for the day, and the streets become busier. I stare down the road and consider my walk home. I look over. I see the bus. Friends are waiting, and I think I will join them today. We board the bus. It is almost full. Four of us shuffle down the aisle, perhaps around five, maybe six rows from the front. This is where we have to sit, that line, always that line. Invisible, yet clearly demarcated by our reality. The door creaks shut, the sound of the engine gets louder as the gear engages, and the tug of the road is noticeable as the bus begins to pull away. It is undeniably warmer on the bus. The breeze from the windows is not the same as the openness of the air from which I just came. Perhaps it's the proximity to that other reality. Compressed into a tight space, normal only because it is all too familiar. What other reality exists? I do not know. My lived experience knows only this version. The conversations of the last month are too abstract in this confined space. The air, too thick. My mind, too preoccupied. Perhaps they are a dream that has not yet been had. A promised land that has not yet been envisioned. We sat down, two of us on each side of the aisle. There wasn't much conversation. There never was. And when it did happen, it was usually muted. Maybe it was the heat. Doubtful. The heat around here was so much more than the weather. We just proceeded down the road. Which is what you're supposed to do. Just keep moving. I see her get on the bus. There isn't a seat available anymore. She slowly walks down the aisle, past three rows, then four. Eyes narrowed with a sullen face, expressionless almost. She walks all the way to that line, that invisible line, and there is no need to go further. What is beyond that line is of no importance to her. She turns back towards the driver. Her options are in that direction, not the other. No need to look further. No words are exchanged, but I see the driver's eyes in his rearview mirror. The woman and he exchange glances, and he blinks slowly. I can't hear the sound of the road anymore, nor, the f nor feel the breeze through the window. That confined space feels even smaller now. The contraction of space is familiar, almost like that part of breath we're used to taking constantly, yet somehow always feels tighter during the inhale. I need those seats, the driver's voice bellowed from the front. That was it. Just four words. The same four words, heard countless times before, by countless people before. Nothing to process. The action and the reaction had been normalized and routinized. The script had been written a long time ago. 
You're supposed to follow the script. It is the normal order. The two individuals sitting across the aisle and the one sitting beside me immediately rise from their seats. They walk further back and remain standing. For that is what is written in the script. My feet feel heavy, weighed down, like they are stuck to the floor of the bus. I don't say a word. I don't have a word to say. There is no word in the script. In my periphery, I can see the empty seats across the aisle from me. They are available. They are perfectly good seats. Those seats were vacated by two people so as to benefit the one person standing. Not an elderly person. Not someone who needed two seats. Just one person who walked up to the line, saw no room, and expected the line to be moved. Yes, that invisible line demarcated by our reality. It shifted while I sat in my seat now. I was on the wrong side, and I haven't even moved. I hear rumbling voices, angry and confused. I cannot make out what they are saying. It is all happening so fast, and yet somehow everything feels like it's moving in slow motion. My feet like, feel like they are stuck in thick mud. The muscles in my legs are tense. My back is stiff and I am acutely aware of the bead of sweat rolling down from my hairline. Those open seats across from me are not yet good enough. They are not yet usable because the line shifted below me while I sat in the same place and I am now in the wrong row. Under the twisted understanding and application of the Plessy Doctrine, this is not separate because she would have to share the row with me if she sat down. That could not happen. She had to be closer to the front, and I had to be behind the line. I heard a voice telling me to get up. I could not tell if it was coming from behind me, from in front of me, or from within me. My body wasn't moving. It felt as though Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder, and Sojourner Truth's hands were pushing me down on the other shoulder. I paid my fare. I should have rights. And she could sit in the available seats. I had stayed behind the line and the line moved. I didn't. And I wouldn't. The bus did not stop, but the air got heavier. The space seemed smaller. That confined space was closing in. Then the bus jerked and came to a stop. The silence was deafening. Although I'm not entirely certain if it was really silent on that bus. The driver was having an animated conversation with two policemen at the junction at which the bus had come to a stop. Within a few minutes, which seemed like an hour to me, two policemen boarded the bus. The sound of their boots as they walked past the first few rows of the bus sounded like an army marching towards me. It was all-consuming as I stared down at the floor, afraid but defiant. I had paid my fare. I should have rights. That is all I could focus on. How is this separate but equal? I do not feel equal. I am not equal. Nor is, nor, not in this moment or any other moment before this. A commotion followed. I do not fully remember the conversation, although conversation is hardly a fair description of what transpired.
My books went flying and I felt a strong hand grab my arm. I don't know how I ended up off the bus. I was told later that it was an uncouth display as I was kicked and dragged backwards off the bus, the details of which are buried and recessed deep in my pain subconscious. I was in the back of the police car now, and I remember clearly when they asked me to stick my hands out the window. I felt the cold, hard steel push against my wrist. My bones felt every vibration as the single strand of the handcuff pushed against my arm. The loud sound of the ratchets clicking as the handcuffs tightened. After her arrest, the community rallied and a number of black leaders raised money for her defense. At the time, local black leaders believed that her case was an appropriate one to litigate all the way to the United States Supreme Court as part of the broader effort to overturn segregation laws in the South. And a little-known 26-year-old preacher of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church made his political debut, fighting her arrest. On December 5, 1955, 40,000 African-American bus passengers boycotted the Montgomery, Alabama bus system. Black leaders met to form the Montgomery Improvement Association, the MIA, electing the young pastor as their president. On May 11, 1956, she testified in a Montgomery federal court hearing about her actions on the bus. Because the case challenged the constitutionality of a state statute, the case was brought before a three-judge U.S. District Court panel. On June 5, 1956, the panel ruled 2-1 to one that segregation on Alabama's interstate buses was unconstitutional, that Montgomery's segregation codes deny, quote, and deprive plaintiffs and other Negro citizens similarly situated of the equal protection of the law and due process of law secured by the 14th Amendment, end quote. On December 17, 1956, the Supreme Court rejected city and state appeals to reconsider their decision. Three days later, on, the, on December 20, 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregation on the buses must end and affirmed the June ruling. That same day, the young preacher and the MIA voted to end the 381-day bus boycott. The Montgomery buses were integrated the following day. The pastor, in an address to a mass meeting at Holt Street Baptist Church, stated that the principle that separate facilities are inherently unequal and that the old Plessy doctrine of separate but equal is no longer valid, either sociologically or legally. That then-defiant act was one of the most significant moments, even a watershed event in the American Civil Rights Movement. Most of us can name the courageous woman who refused to yield her seat and the young preacher that led the way. Every fall semester when I begin teaching, I open by sharing this story with my students at the college. At the end of the story, I ask them if they are familiar with the narrative. The answers are always an emphatic, yes, of course. I follow with, who is the pastor? Almost all of them in unison shout, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And finally I ask, who is the woman? And the response is just as quick and confident, Rosa Parks. 
I usually pause until the room is settled into a quiet silence, a practice that I still think is unsettling to the vast majority of my students. As I stand at the front of the room, looking up the stadium-style rows of the lecture hall, I see the students begin to shift and squirm in their seats. At this point, they have a quizzical look on their face, some of them checking their class schedules, wondering if in fact they're in the wrong room. Perhaps this is a civics class, not the course they were, they were enrolled in. Others wonder if something happened somewhere else in the room that has forced me to stop. And then there are probably at least a couple of students who figure that the eccentric professor at the front of the room has forgotten his next line. What none of them seem to do, however, is wonder if there is something wrong with the response they provided. Why would they? They have heard this story many times before, from elementary to high school to post-secondary in history classes and in civic classes, from social studies to Black History Month. It is a defining story of the American Civil Rights Movement, and many of them remember watching the news when then US President Barack Obama unveiled the Rosa Parks statue on February 27, 2013. The statue of Rosa Parks captured her waiting to be arrested in 1955 after she refused to give up her seat for a white passenger on a crowded segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama. She is seated, clutching her purse as she looks out of an unseen window, waiting for the police. The statue was the first commissioned by the US Congress in 140 years. She became the first black woman to be honored with a life-size statue in the Capitol. Her statue added to a collection of art dedicated to prominent black women in the Capitol that includes a bust of Sojourner Truth and a painting of Shirley Chisholm. The New York Times quoted President Obama as saying in tribute, quote, This morning we celebrate a seamstress, slight of stature but mighty in courage. In a single moment, with the simplest of gestures, she helped change America and change the world. And today, she takes her rightful place amongst those who shaped this nation's course. He, he then chronicled how Miss Parks, Mrs. Parks, despite having held no elected office, lacking wealth and living far from the seat of power, touched off a movement that made it possible for him to become president. Even Republican Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky said that Mrs. Parks' decision to get arrested rather than give up her seat helped unite the country. After a period of what I'm sure seems like an eternity of the class, I began my lecture again. I tell them that they were half correct, and fortunately for them this was not a graded activity because they would have all received a whopping 50%. Not quite an F, but a far cry from an A+. The pastor is none other than the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But the woman in the story is not Rosa Parks. I remind them of the very first line of the story. It is March 2nd, 1955. That would be a full nine months before the arrest of Rosa Parks on December 1st, 1955. As a point of fact, I could have told them a story about Aurelia Browder, a 36-year-old woman who was arrested in April of 1955, or of Mary Louise Smith, an 18-year-old woman arrested in October of 1955 or of Susie McDonald, commonly known as Miss Sue, a woman in her 70s 
who was also arrested in October 1955. Instead, I told him the story from March 2, 1955, about a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin, the first person to be arrested for challenging Montgomery's bus segregation policies. What all those women have in common is that they were all arrested for refusing to give up their seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus before Rosa Parks. It was these four women who we must call by name, Aurelia Browder, Susie McDonald, Claudette Colvin, and Mary Louise Smith, who served as plaintiffs in the legal action challenging Montgomery's segregated public transportation system. It was their case, known as Browder versus Gale, that the district court and ultimately the US Supreme Court would use to, stri to strike down segregation on buses. Rosa Parks was neither handcuffed nor jailed and was released after being found guilty of disorderly conduct and paying a $10 fine. Parks was convicted under city law. Her lawyers filed a notice of appeal and while her appeal was tied up in the state court of appeals, the Browder versus Gale case ruling was settled. In November 1957, in a general settlement of the bus boycott, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks dropped their appeals to the state Supreme Court and paid their fines. It is an important reminder that crucial change is often ignited by very plain, unremarkable people who then disappear. That was a quote from David J. Garrow, a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of Dr. King. The story is not intended to disparage the legacy of Rosa Parks, but rather to celebrate the unsung heroes who contributed to the cause.